Episode 11 of If These Walls, Ford's Theater, The Assassination of Lincoln, is best paired with the Fairfield Four's Lonesome Valley and a whole dang barrel full of whiskey. Corn mash, of course. I had a book on manners when I was a little kid because I was a brat and a half and it was called Hello Gnu, How Do You Do? And it was so my mom could teach me how to be a nice lady and not a fucking pain in the ass like I was. How how do you get a bratty child to sit down and read a book about manners though? If they're inherently ill-behaved. I don't know. You make it rhyme and put pictures of animals and gnus in it. Are you supposed to hit the G that hard? GNU. Yes. I got a C in zoology. Trust me. This is If These Walls. (laughs) And we're here to talk about history and not zoology. Hi, everybody. I'm Audrey. And that is Galena. Good for you. (laughs) A little known and infrequently trafficked part of Ohio. Galena. Oh, I see what you did there. It's Galena, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. All right. That's enough about Northeastern Ohio. Lainey, how you doing? Woof. I know, right? If 2020 just doesn't make you sad based on the news and just like crippling social media posts and the the everything that's bad, it then comes for your soul uh, from the inside out. And just worms its way into all the the dark places of your brain and goes, hey, you haven't worried about this in a while. How about, how about, tap, 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 tap. How about worrying about this? Uh, yes. And also, and also then you move beyond that into this realm of, sure, whatever it is, sure. I might have toenail cancer. It's one of those things where it's, what's the absolute worst case scenario? And just assume that, of course, that was going to happen. Of course. I'm honestly waiting for John Cusack in a giant arc. Did you see the movie 2012? Did anyone? Who saw the movie 2012? And why am I referencing a microphone that's not working? (laughs) In case I sound different tonight, everybody, um, part of 2020's never-ending reach of destruction and chaos was that I flew to Ohio, yay! Yay. And I think my microphone got broken on the way. Boo! (laughs) So I am here talking into a phantom microphone, but definitely being recorded by my computer, so. The exciting part of this whole situation is that soon we will be able to record in person for the first time ever. We just wanted to give Audrey a little bit of time to quarantine after traveling which is the smart thing to do because when you love someone you make sure that they're safe and i'm gonna make sure that my little lady crusty but a bit of a me stay safe thank you <laughs> i appreciate it you're welcome but it will be very exciting to record in person i'm so excited for it i it's either gonna be great or it's gonna be absolute chaos but no i can't wait <laughs> it was chaos before it'll be chaos again it'll be great at least we're more focused now. Yeah, there's something really nice about the setup of reading um, my notes and then having you next to me. I don't know. It's it's 
more scholastic that way. I don't freaking know. I just, listen guys, I flew all the way from New York to Columbus and boy, are my arms tired. And so is the rest of me. <laughs> Did Jerry use that joke? I think Jerry has evolved beyond that joke. <laughs> I think so He's too. So maybe you shouldn't. No, no. I am excited too. I know that we were talking about potentially dipping into some like summary topics, but part of me wants to dive right into the, hey, I've been there portion of this. Oh, go for it. Okay. Because the topic we're talking about today, as we said last week, we'll kick off the first two-parter of the If These Walls series. And we're starting with a place that I've been and was a little bit obsessed with. We've made reference to this before that yeah well researching my half of this all i can keep thinking is this story is theater plus murder plus history how could this topic not be the most perfect thing for us to cover my mother made the made a comment two nights ago at dinner what about why don't you and laney talk about theater things since it's what you know and i said two sick burn sue three oh fuck (laughs) i didn't start with one one see i'm tired (laughs) Two, sick burn, Sue. One, that's the whole point, is we research new things. And three, our topic this week does, in fact, take place in the theater. And we're going to be talking about theater in the 1800s in America. Yours takes place in a theater. I mean, mine takes place in a theater, too, by association. But mine also includes an actor and a man who was well-versed in theater. And, yeah, perfect. I... what we're talking about. No, they don't know yet. They don't know yet. You don't want to talk about your summering? It's part of the weird, the weird vibe that is this entire year. So I, like many nerdy children, um, ingested a lot of Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte novels and, and films based off those and became a little bit transfixed by this concept concept of summering like everyone has a second location they go to um and it's something only fancy people do even though the majority of the heroines in jane austen novels are poor but anyway um i have been summering it seems in ohio and i wonder if this is just going to be my life now is spending half the time in new york and half the time in columbus and hey now that we're all working from home is summering coming back Two, I'm very excited about this concept of you being in Ohio more. And one, (laughs) thank you. No, thank you. In a non-COVID world, there is also summering. It just looks very different. It's 25-year-olds that pay for to stay in a Hamptons house with six bedrooms, but there's 90 of them and they switch off weekends and they drive four hours to get there and four hours back and they waste like their entire Fridays and Sundays. And like, that's not great. Your version of suffering is a lot better. Yeah. I'm spending time with my family. Yeah. Well, and and not cooking and not driving everywhere and not sharing a house with 90 people. That never appealed to me anyway. The whole timeshare kind of set up. No, it sounds terrible. Yeah. I like my space to be my space. Yes. My oh space. my God, me too. I mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. So everyone think about your favorite place to summer. Hit us up at ifthesewallspod.com. Did I get a thing right? That is our no. website, yes. Okay. 
at the website at the and website <laughs> and let us know where you're summering. <laughs> um, I uh, going back to Sue's comment. Well, I do enjoy talking about theater. Um, it is something I know. It's something I can definitely know more about, but not something I already have my time that I spend on theater stuff. What I appreciate about this podcast and the way we've set it up, and hopefully we will continue to grow and get better at it, is this idea of having some a topic to focus on and become somewhat obsessive over for a short period of time while you're researching. Because each of us is researching for about a week and a half to two weeks, really. So during that time, anytime I see a news article or anytime I find a podcast about that topic, I get extra obsessed with it again. And it's given me something really cool to accomplish. I think, I think that we should uh, possibly consider maybe every 20 episodes having a, um, a little like side stories and decor episode for the number of sidetracked bits and pieces that I find when I'm researching. Like looking into this topic, I learned all about this bitch that was a socialite at the time, has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now, but I became obsessed with this lady and I have nothing to link her to. Well then, yeah. I mean, tell them your topic because we can just, we'll be vague about it for the rest of our lives unless you start talking. Welcome again to If These Walls, the podcast where we take you through the most famous and infamous locations throughout history and let you know what we think happened there. And then, yeah, no, totally what probably actually happened there. Throw out your whitewashed history books. We're here to take a stab at what you should have learned the first time. I'm Audrey. That's Elena. We're going to try and teach you something new each week. Let's just start the whole episode there because honestly, that was the most cohesive thing I've said in the past 24 hours. That one sentence right there. <laughs> but then that wouldn't be being true to ourselves as people. So I'm a beautiful mess. All right. So this week I'm taking the wheel and I am kicking off the first of our two part series on drum roll, please. I'm afraid I'll upset my microphone, so I'm not going to do it. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln. No, let's not do trumpets there. By the coward John Wilkes Booth. There you go. <laughs> and this is what's interesting is even when we say that you you have these presuppositions about the personalities of these people. It's so I think in our bones as people that were brought up through the American public school or parochial school system. Like when you learn American history, you spend a lot of time talking about the Civil War and talking about Abraham Lincoln. However, as John Oliver literally just pointed out this week, I was so happy. His episode uh, on Sunday really went along with what we were talking about here. There's a real issue with how these stories are presented. And I am very happy to kick off my telling of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, specifically focusing on Ford's theater with a foreword from the Ford Theater Society. Oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Um, the I thought about this a lot, or I continue to think about this as I am researching my topic. I realize I completely just interrupted you, but I wanted no, 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 to say something. Um, everyone knows the broad strokes of this topic, but it's it's beauty is in the details, like most stories. Mm-hmm. And the, there are so many details. And this is one of the stories where, I mean, if I was one of those people that was there at the time, I would be that bitch that's like, 
cutting off a lock of someone's hair to like preserve history because reading about the specifics that happen because this is such a huge overarching event, like the weight of how large this event is makes those little details just seem like somewhat unbelievable that we can pinpoint down to the exact time that certain things happened, even though this happened a long time before modern conveniences. It's just crazy. A couple reasons why is because within the scope of the entire existence of humanity, it still was relatively recent. This also happened, a couple big things. It was a civil war, which is a pretty significant moment in a country's history. It was the first assassination of a president. And it was also a time in which we were starting to develop methods of recording things. Matthew Brady famously photographed the civil war um, in a way that had no one had access to before. It was just, they were developing photography. Um, you were also getting the development of phonographs and different recording devices. So it there was more of a sense of being able to preserve whatever was happening. Yeah. Where, where we have a responsibility as um, ingesters of history. Sure, I'm gonna throw that in. And, and also where historians have this responsibility and the Ford, uh, Ford's Theater Society does a great job of tackling this is we need to be cognizant at all times of how we're presenting that information and how that's that oral history is going to live on then because you have to think about the impact of how did you feel when you learned this information what was your perception of it then because that's going to make you think is it the is it the coward john wilkes booth or was he some kind of activist hero he wasn't and we'll get into that in a bit but <laughs> Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. So, <laughs> stop, stop it, stop it, stop it. We will not have Hamilton in every episode, even though, uh, just so you know, I did have an opportunity to inject a W.E.B. Du Bois quote into this, and I chose not to. Oh. At that point, I just thought it was, it was just, we we're hammering it too hard. Okay, fine. So. A forward from the Ford's Theater Society and the National Park Service. This can be found on their website, which shout out to literally anyone teaching from home right now. The Ford's Theater website is the most comprehensive educational tool I have ever seen on one website. They're like, are you trying to teach a second grader about Lincoln's assassination? Here's the packet you need to teach them. Are you talking to a high school student? Are you talking to a college student? Here's all these papers. Here's literally every documented piece of evidence from that night that you need to know. Here's what was going on in the world at that time. It is outstanding. Ideally, every exhibition program or resource for any audience should be based on an interpretive plan. There are many definitions out there, but generally, interpretive plans help unify messages and takeaways that a museum or historic site wants visitors to understand and walk away with following a visit. Haley Goldman created an idealized model, model of how an interpretive plan should fit into an organization's work. And this is how the Ford Theater Society built not only their walkthrough program, but the exhibits that you see when you visit the Ford Theater today. The interpretive plan behind Ford's Theater's ex exhibitions can be found in full on their website, along with literally everything else you'll ever need to teach the story to anyone. And the plan includes the Ford Theater Society's foundational truths, interpretive themes, as well as outcomes and moments of dialogue they hope these themes will spark in their visitors. And I'd like to begin today by presenting a key portion of that plan. Wonderful. 
right? Educated. All right, let's go. <laughs> Look into things. Resources are everywhere, guys. So the foundational truths document contains three non-negotiable statements which address specific interpretive issues that we found through experience with the visitors to the site that they need to focus on. The non-negotiable statement number one, the Civil War and John Wilkes Booth's assassination of Abraham Lincoln were motivated by the desire to perpetuate an economic, political, and social system of white racial superiority, of which slavery was an integral part. This is to counter notions that something other than slavery, like states' rights or tariffs, sparked the Civil War. It is non-negotiable. Two, political violence happened at Ford's Theater. Such acts are serious and have long-ranging implications for all aspects of society. This is to counter a focus on the macabre details of the Lincoln assassination, the fascination that some people find in those macabre details, Elena. Sorry. And counter assassination jokes we often hear and see. Me. All of these obscure, <laughs> all of these obscure, obscure the political motives of John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators. And non-negotiable statement number three, Lincoln was an extraordinary leader and like all of us was a fallible complex human being whose legacy continues to evolve. Too often people hold up Lincoln as a demigod. We need to look at historical figures through critical lenses and you can't do that if you're putting them on pedestals or giant stone monuments, period. Damn, Ford's Theater. They are not playing around. They have been here, they have been doing this. That's amazing. I want, God, I want to work there. Oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the three non-negotiable terms that they have laid out. And then they have five interpretive themes. And I pulled out two that I really want to focus on today. Okay. Um, two interpretive themes. One, Ford's Theater is one of the only historic sites in Washington offering a window into the city as it was during the Civil War. The war brought profound changes to the city, many of which are still visible today. The people of Civil War Washington were shaped by Lincoln's choices as presidents, but they also influenced him and his policies profoundly every day through everyday human interactions. Those interactions and choices continue to shape the city and nation today. We all affect each other. Think about who you're around and how you treat them because you are impacting your society. You are in it. You are part of it. Wake up. Don't sneeze on them. Don't. Especially now. You ever been sneezed on in public? Yeah, but it was pre-COVID. Oh, I had a kid ah. sneeze in my mouth when I was babysitting him. Oh. If you've I, ever had something that made you want to immediately vomit, that is up there. I mean, yeah, I've had, I have a lot of nieces and nephews, so I did a lot of baby stuff. So I've been peed, pooped, puked, spit on, all that yeah. stuff. That's being alive. It's a regular yeah. Saturday night. Uh-huh. Interpretive theme number two, memorialization can be a powerful agent of healing and inspiration. It can also be a damaging tool of hagiography. I think I pronounced that right. I'm so sorry. I'm not familiar with the study. It's spelled H-A-G-I-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Is it the study of hedgehogs? It absolutely is. Great. It can also be a damaging tool of sonic the hedgehogography <laughs> that weakens our understanding of human complexity and of our current agency. The preservation and recreation of Ford's Theater and the res restoration of the Peterson House across the street invite discussions about how our country memorializes leaders and tragic events and the continuing, continuing role of memorials in today's society. 
current, up to date. There is nothing stagnant about this historical society. They are listening to the people and saying, all right, here's the role we play in that. Yeah. It's the double-edged sword of the, well, not really, but kind of, of the monuments to Confederate leaders because mm -hmm. it's when this is a great historic event. It should be preserved. These two buildings should be preserved, but also should they? And for how long? Question mark. A memorial to an event is just that. It is a memorial. This is not the greatest song that was ever written. This is the tribute. You got to believe it. To quote the... <laughs> so you can't hold in this like godlike esteem memorial. You're not going to forget the history of something. Right. Read a book. Read a book. Read a book. Read a motherfucking book. It can be presented to you in a, in a not great way. So make sure you're educating yourself. But yes. So let's talk about where this memorial got its start. Okay. Okay. The site of the Ford Theater was originally a house of worship constructed in 1833 as the second meeting house of the First Baptist Church of Washington. See, they put the two before the one too, just like me. Originally a multiracial con uh, congregation, First Baptist Church split in 1839 into white and African-American churches. They occupied the site until 1859 and 1861, John T. Ford, purchased the First Baptist Church and renovated it into a theater. After a fire in late 1862, Ford had a new building erected, the present day Ford's Theater. It was one of Washington's premier theaters as the Civil War raged. Hmm. You'd think people weren't going to the theater back then, just the opposite. Really expanded as an entertainment in the 1860s. The only thing that can stop theater is COVID. Am I right? <laughs> It's funny because our livelihoods are gone. <laughs> I just, I wouldn't want to offer you any support. I just wanted to watch you cry at your own statement. Like, how dare you make me remember that? Uh, make me feel my feelings. I hate it here. So going to the theater was a social gathering where many people met up with friends to socialize, not necessarily to watch the performance. How dare so they? Really, I, right. It was typical for audiences to be rambunctious, rambunctious, hissing, chanting, or at worst, even throwing things or fighting. And Ford's theater was no exception. I mean, we've had this since the days of bear baiting and Shakespeare. We've, that is the traditional history of theater. Theaters were places where people could forget their everyday lives and concerns, which was especially important for people in Washington in, a, in the 1860s, who were living through a period of war. So during that time, Ford's theater was an opulent venue that gave the impression of finery and elegance, opulence, and was a beautiful escape from reality. President Lincoln himself visited Ford's Theater on 10 formal occasions during his presidency, because Lincoln was a fan of the performing arts. He enjoyed theatrical comedy and drama, especially Shakespeare, and regularly was an audience member at DC theaters. Yes. These I was reading about his love for uh, Shakespeare today. Shakespeare and also, side note, music. It was really kind of delightful to hear multiple accounts of people saying he loved music and he was not a singer, but he did enjoy robustly participating in song, regardless of the fact that he was not a singer. Same, Abe. Same. Got it. 
I will sing out Louise. It's not great though. <laughs> but it makes me happy. So Ford's theater was essentially his way of resting his mind from the pressures of presidency. And he had many pressures. President and First Lady Mary Lincoln first attended a performance in May of 1862. In 1863, he went five times, including a November 9th performance of Charles Selby's The Marble Heart, which featured John Wilkes Booth in one of the leading roles. Lincoln and the First Lady returned to Ford's Theater for performances three times in the following year before, you know, he ran into Johnny again. Not on stage this time. Mm, no. No. So that's the background on Ford Theater. Let's talk about the Civil War. You ready? You ready? Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Yes. Well, we, we said that Lincoln had a lot on his mind. Lainey, I think if you've heard this, but uh, did you know that Trump has been the worst treated president in history, except for maybe Lincoln? Did you know that? I have heard that, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's why that's wrong. First off, let's talk about... <laughs> Let's talk about Taft for a second. Taft was chronically depressed, had to follow Teddy Roosevelt, admitted constantly that he absolutely hated being in office. And despite being the only person to serve as both president and a justice of the Supreme Court, his legacy has been reduced to being the guy that got stuck in the bathtub. That is a tough day. And to be fair, he was the heaviest president. He was five foot 11 and 350 pounds. And once he got out of office, he lost a considerable amount of weight because he was happy and stopped gaining all that grief bacon. Oh my God. Truth. I didn't know that. I know. I want to, I told you, I want to do a whole thing just on Taft's bathtub. And <laughs> so Taft aside, it is a pretty fair assessment to say that Abe did not have the best four years one could possibly have while in office. And even the period leading up to his election, I hate to say it, but Lincoln was basically a straw man being batted about by the Republican Party. He was a moderate on slavery, anti-tariff, and basically boasted the mindset of a political maintenance man. So all signs pointed to Lincoln strengthening the basic operation of the government and preserving the union. During the entire campaign, he didn't give speeches. He didn't give any sort of great emotional rallying posters. There wasn't a fucking theme song. There was nothing. His campaign was entirely driven by the passion of the party and social calls for preservation of the union and youth voter registration and awareness. This movement was known as the Wide Awakes. They woke. Literal wokeness. Wokeness. Early wokeness. We have been doing this since the 1860s. We're very successful at it. <laughs> I'm wide awake. Um, when he was elected <laughs> November 6th, 1860, his victory was entirely due to his support in the North and West. No ballots were cast for him in 10 of the 15 Southern slave states, and he won only two of the 996 counties in all the Southern states. Wow. wow. Lincoln was the first Republican president. He received just shy of 2 million votes or through... <laughs> I had a small stroke just then trying to read <laughs> that number. 39.8% of the total in a four-way race carrying the free Northern states, as well as California and Oregon. His victory in the electoral, electoral college was also decisive. Lincoln had 180 votes to the next highest, 72, 
John Breckinridge, a Democratic Southerner, 39 for John Bell, who represented the Constitutional Union Party, and 12 for Northern Democrat Stephen Douglas. So let's talk political parties for a second and how this concept of we need a two-party system is a little bit bizarre considering the fact that we have many times during our country's history not had a two-party system. And the two parties that exist today have flip-flop values and titles so many times it's fucking nuts. Think about Hamilton. Let's go back to Hamilton. And the, as David Diggs so eloquently said, Southern motherfucking Democratic Republicans. Your Mr. original- Pop until we had a two-party system. So you have this split and while, so John Breckinridge, Democratic Southern, and Stephen Douglas, Democrat in the North, they're two factions of the Democratic Party, but they were so utterly divided, specifically on the topic of slavery, which was treated primarily as an economic topic, especially within that Democratic Party. But it did cause a split. I mean, it was still a total of 84 electoral votes versus Lincoln's 180. But if they could get some kind of divisiveness come together as a Democratic Party, maybe they could have had a better chance. I mean, I'm glad Lincoln won, but I'm just looking at from a political tactic point of view. Yeah. The ups and downs of having a two-party versus a multi-party system is you get that scattering of the votes. But also, just so you know, when people say, I'm a Republican because Lincoln was a Republican, it meant something different back then. Well, it does. And sorry to interrupt your story, but... Have you heard about the Lincoln Project? Yes. So they've, the, I found them first on Twitter because their tweets are fire. <laughs> but yeah, there, I was just, um, I was listening, but I was also navigating to their website. So Abraham Lincoln is their inspiration. And these, these are basically a bunch of Republicans that are saying, Abraham Lincoln is, is our inspiration. These are the things we agree with of the Republican party that traditionally have been of the Republican party, but bitch, we pissed and we really hate Trump. <laughs> and so now they're coming out in support of all the things that matter right now, black lives matter, feminism, getting Trump out of there. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, and I suggest following them. If you want to read about him, it's lincolnproject.us. I won't read you the whole paragraph, but there's a whole thing that says like our inspiration. And it's talking about why Lincoln is their inspiration. So, I love that. I love that yeah. journey for them. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is part, a big part of his campaign um, and his, and I guess his, his whole party's stance on slavery was trying to uplift him as this guy who pulled himself up by his bootstraps. I mean, he did not come from much. <laughs> he was, he was more of the soft spoken type. Uh, he definitely did. He didn't come from any kind of money and they were trying to essentially tote that, you know, he was the ideal American, somebody who pulled themselves up by, them boots, by their bootstraps and that you could, you had the labor in you as a person to till your own land, to run your own business and that you didn't need to rely on slave labor. That was the whole argument and that's why they liked him so much. Right. Yeah. Like, like an immigrant that comes to this country and makes something for themselves because that's what America's about. They get the job done. <sighs> The Republican Party had assured concerned voters that there couldn't possibly be a reaction as rash as mass secession in response to Lincoln's election. And boy, were they wrong about that. 
Secessionists implemented plans to leave the Union before he took office in March 1861. On December 20th, 1860, South Carolina took the lead by adopting an ordinance of secession. Bye, bitch. I was, <laughs> I was like, What's sorry. <laughs> By February 1st of 1861, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas followed. I feel like I need to follow up my bye bitch comment by saying, I love the Southern states. That was not like, that was just, I was just trying to make a funny joke. I was going to say, aren't you about to go to South Carolina? Yeah, I love her there. (laughs) (laughs) So six of the estates declared themselves to be a sovereign nation the Confederate States of America, and adopted a constitution. The Upper South and Border States, which are Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, and Arkansas, initially rejected the secessionist appeal, but they would later jump on the train before too long. We all know how that went. President Buchanan and President-elect Lincoln refused to recognize the Confederacy, declaring secession illegal. The Confederacy said, I don't care, I hate it here, I'm starting my own life, and selected Jefferson Davis as its provisional president on February 9th, 1861. Three months. It took them three months to secede, get a whole new system together, and elect a president. And you mean to tell me that our current sitting House of Representatives and Senate couldn't put together a bill before they took their summer vacation to make sure that we all got extended unemployment benefits? You saying that couldn't happen? No, yeah, they needed to go on vacation. Gotta take a long weekend. So later in his second inaugural address, Lincoln looked back on the whole situation at the time and said, quote, both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And then the war came. There's so, some Decemberist song playing somewhere right now. Oh, Yeah. So things were off to a rocky start. On February 23rd, 1861, Lincoln arrived in disguise in Washington, uh, D.C. He was placed under substantial military guard. He had already dealt with an assassination attempt in Baltimore prior to his inauguration. Desperate to preserve the Union, Lincoln directed his inaugural address to the South, proclaiming once again that he had no inclination to abolish slavery in the Southern states. I am quoting now from his inaugural address. Apprehension seems to exist amongst the people. This is me doing my Ken Burns, um, Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lainey, do you want to give it a try? (laughs) Apprehend. No, mine's like, mine goes, mine goes way to, uh, what's his name? Jefferson Davis? No, I don't know how. Morgan Freeman? Yeah. Is I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm narrating Shawshank. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and prison is not a fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> Apprehension seems to exist among the people of the southern states that by the accession of a Republican administration, their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered. I declare that I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. 
Mr. President, Mr. President, why? Well, young lady, I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> what if they actually took questions during the inauguration? Oh my God. Excuse <laughs> <Yes>, me? <laughs> Question. So, as a lawyer, not me, him, he absolutely gave a fair and balanced judgment on what he had the lawful right to do. Because the federal government's power to end slavery was limited by the Constitution, which began before the 1865 um, delegation to, which before, in 1865, the Emancipation Proclamation delegated the issue to the individual states. So Lincoln had argued that slavery would be rendered obsolete if it was kept isolated to the existing southern states with a cap on its expansion into new territories. And eventually, when paid labor systems became a majority practice, the country might naturally shift its consciousness away from slavery. Right. So he was only saying what he had the power to do based on the Constitution. Yeah. Got it. So his original plan was to get the states to agree to compensation for emancipating their slaves in return for their acceptance of abolition. And this slow and steady plan was as aggressive as he ever intended to get. Lincoln rejected two separate emancipation attempts in August 1861, as well as one in May of 1862, on the grounds that it was not within federal power and would upset the loyal border states. Hmm. So finally, in June 1862, Congress passed an act banning slavery on all federal territory, which Lincoln signed. In July, the Confiscation Act of 1862 was enacted providing court procedures to free the slaves of those convicted of aiding the rebellion. Lincoln approved the bill despite his belief that it was still unconstitutional. But he felt like those actions could be taken only within the war powers of the commander in chief, which he then planned to exercise. And this would be one of the first actions that began royally taking off both pro and anti-slavery moderates. As a country birthed out of rebellion against the forces of tyranny, displays of power that reach beyond what is set in our constitution is a swift way to raise red flags among the majority of Americans. And it's also something that as a practitioner of the law, he personally struggled with. So you have this incredibly delicate balancing act of needing to demonstrate strength as a leader and a union preservationist during a civil war and ensuring that you do as little as possible to disrupt the system of checks and balances put in place to limit executive power. Ooh. It's okay, because if you're a reality TV star instead of a lawyer, and also you don't know or care what the Constitution says, you can just steamroll over that stuff. We'll get there. Don't Absolutely. Worry. But even absolute hatred um, and despise for all of our current president's decisions aside, just as a human in any position of power, that is a lot. Yeah. That his, is a lot to balance. His stressors, man. I feel for the guy. Not the least of which was his wife. And we'll get to married to that. Oh, yeah. She was a pill. All right. So in a letter of August 22nd, Let's take it again. In a letter dated August 22nd, 1862, Lincoln said that while he personally wished all men could be free, regardless of that, his first obligation as president was to preserve the union. Another quote. 
My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Basically, he's like, got let's, let's stay together. <laughs> Pretty much. He's like, he's like, guys, I don't care. I don't just stomp. You're tearing me apart. You're tearing this family apart. And also, um, when you edit this later, can you put some like Ken Burnsy music under? Whenever we read, yeah, stuff. yeah, I think it's necessary. Yeah. So that summer, Lincoln read a draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. Pro that summer, mm. Lincoln. <laughs> Broccoli. I am doing so good with these big words. That summer, Lincoln read a draft of the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who is one of my new favorite badasses, by the way. Oh, he yeah, he plays a big role in part two, too, obviously. Oh, oh, he is a man of decision and a man he of is. action. He is. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton wrote at the time that the Secretary of State, William Seward, had vocally opposed it in principle, feeling that the slaves should simply be freed as Union armies advanced. Just a natural act of the conquering of the South. So two later accounts indicated that Seward felt that it was not yet time to issue an emancipation proclamation. Proclamation. <laughs> I can, I swear to God, I can say that word. Broccoli nation. Broccoli nation. Oh, I'm going to say that now. And Lincoln did wait until after the battle of Antietam to issue it. Antietam, for those of you who don't, you know, know all your battles by heart, Antietam was specifically significant as it was one super duper bloody, but essentially a stalemate. And that too, it ended Robert E. Lee's movement further into the North. The Emancipation Proclamation, effective January 1st, 1863, affirmed the freedom of slaves in 10 states not then under union control with exemptions for specified for areas under such control. Lincoln's comment on signing the proclamation was, I never in my life felt more certain that I was doing right than I do in signing this paper. He spent the next 100 days preparing the army and the nation for emancipation, while Northern Democrats, who, if you'll recall, had been totally spanked by Lincoln and the Republican Party in the 1860 election, rallied the now doubtful moderates in the North by warning of the threat that freed slaves posed to Northern whites, which as I'm sure you can imagine, were non-existent, stupid, fabricated, and very racist. There's another book. Well, we're speaking of children's books that teach you manners. It's called Stone Soup. And I think the, if, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, the, the point of the whole thing is there's always going to be enough soup for everyone. And the more, the merrier. And everyone can partake in the soup. Because that, well, that's the whole thing is it's in the, in the, in my stone soup, in the stone soup. I know we had, by the way, we had a church potluck when I was a kid where we had stone soup as the main. Yeah. I think great. Cool. Everyone did. Okay. Well, I thought it was my special memory, but okay. <laughs> okay. Calm down. <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, it was the principle of, you know, if you think there isn't enough to share, if you just bring one small bit, whatever you can to the party, you'll suddenly realize that with your own contribution and everyone's contributions that you together can make something that you can enjoy. America is a potluck. And let me tell you something, American food is going to be the worst food there. So, okay. Even if you think about the restaurant, the melting pot, arguably one of the most romantic destinations on our continent, that's Swiss guys. That's not even American food. Please validate me. I hate the melting pot. <laughs> it makes you smell like disgusting cheese smoke. The melting pot lives in this like fantastical place for me because I've never actually been and I've been very sad about that. I love playing with my food. I think that I burned the clothes I wore there because of the smell. Oh, I love that. I love, I love, a, I love an experience that sticks with you, whether you like it or not. I love a fragrant experience. Your mom's a fragrant experience. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so with the abolition of slavery in the rebel states, now a military objective, Union Arm armies advancing south liberated three million slaves. With this liberation came the mass recruit of black soldiers. And within the year, 30 new battalions were formed of former slaves, bolstering Union forces that had up until that point taken on the majority of casualties during the war. The thousands of black recruits um, directly into his ranks is without questions one of the major factors that led General Ulysses S. Grant's capture of Vicksburg on July 4th, 1863. And with that, Grant seized the Confederacy's last bastion on the Mississippi River before moving his campaign east to capture Chattanooga and Knoxville. And if I may, a recommendation for everyone. Earlier this year, Leonardo DiCaprio joined, you didn't think you'd hear that name in the Civil War, Leonardo DiCaprio joined forces with the History Channel to produce a three-part docuseries on Ulysses S. Grant, with particular attention paid to his military campaigns in the Western arena during the war, and it is fantastic. This was like 40, 50 years before he got on the Titanic. Yeah, he's a time traveler. He's an executive producer on it. He's not in it. Oh, sorry. But it's got action. It's got a brooding little bearded hottie as Grant that looks like a perpetually disappointed Hugh Jackman. And it's got top-notch battle reenactments. And it's got one of the more well-rounded, least gilded representation of leaders and movements during the Civil War that I've ever seen. 10 out of 10 would recommend. It's on Ooh. History Channel's website. I'm going to link it in the comments um, or in the in the description. It's a three-parter, go see it. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Yeah. So Lincoln made Grant general in chief of the Union Army in March 1864, but not before Grant had made it known that he had no interest in political office. Just, you know, protecting your home bases. <laughs> Fun fact and a sign of the times. The rank of general in chief was previously held only by George Washington and some guy named Winfield Scott, who had received a temporary brevet promotion to the rank before the war. Hmm. I, I know, know right? Didn't, neither did I. And you know what? Not many people talk about it. I tried to yeah. look for more information. I was like, okay, hmm. Winfield. Um, more like Lewisfield. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> Am I right? So it was not until three years into the Civil War that the two men met for the first time when Grant came to Washington, D.C. to receive his new commission. Grant recalled that Lincoln told him at their first encounter that all he wanted or had ever wanted was someone who would take responsibility and act. Lincoln put up with so much stuff and was just this beleaguered dad of an out of control house saying essentially because most of the people in the North stood behind so much pride and sense of righteousness that um, the Southerners were rebels that you didn't get actual Grant was the first real leader of the Union Army to push into the South and push back. Everyone else was just about holding rank. So Lincoln ran for election in 1864 while uniting the main Republican factions along with the war Democrats, Edwin M. Stanton and Andrew Johnson. Lincoln used conversation and his patronage powers, which greatly expanded um, from previous peacetime, to build support and fend off the radicals effort to replace him. At its convention, the Republicans selected Johnson as his running mate and to broaden his coalition to include war Democrats as well as Republicans, Lincoln ran under the label of the new Union Party because labels, what are subjective? (laughs) (sighs) All right. The Democratic platform followed the peace wing of the party and called the war, quote, a failure. But their candidate, McClellan, a failure of a general, oops, I said it, supported the war, actually, and repudiated the platform. So they did not have their shit together. Meanwhile, Lincoln emboldened Grant with more troops and Republican Party support. Sherman's capture of Atlanta in September and David Farragut's capture of Mobile ended the sense of defeatism that plagued Union sympathizers. Pfizer's. <laughs> the Democratic Party was deeply split with some leaders and most soldiers openly for Lincoln. The National Union Party was united by Lincoln's support for emancipation. So on November 8th, 1864, Lincoln carried all but three states, including 78% of Union soldiers. So what I hear you saying is that even though he's not the perfect candidate and we could have thought of better ones, he's what we're left with and what we need to unite a nation at this time. I didn't hear myself say that, but if that's what the Lord spoke into your ear, then maybe that's what the Lord wants you to hear. It is. (laughs) So with the hotshot general at the helm and a renewed passion from Union supporters, the next few months brought on a series of battles and Southern campaigns that ended with William Tecumseh Sherman sweeping through Georgia to take Atlanta and Grant's siege of Richmond, the Confederate capital. It's all over. General Robert, yeah. Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, 1865. When Lee signed the the surrender documents, the immediate threat to Washington was over. Grant and Lincoln's combined terms of surrender prioritized the pride and trust of what they considered to be, quote, their Southern brothers and granted freedom to all Confederate soldiers with the right to keep all personal belongings, including firearms, and return home to rebuild. This is an un 
unprecedented term for surrender. No one has ever gotten it that good. Yeah, I guess I never knew that. That's kind of incredible. That really was the shutdown. Well, that and also, this is another reason you have to watch the Grant series. Um, when they depict who was in the room when it happened, several of the men that Grant brought with him on his staff were what indigenous leaders robert e lee surrendered to a room full of indigenous folks uh there were some black people in the room and it was it's just it was what the nation could be and should be that was more representative i know huh Grant actually, yeah, please, everyone, please watch the History Channel special on him because he's gotten such a bad rap and I do intend to do a location in the future that centers around Ulysses S. Grant. He's gotten kind of this, you know, whiskey ring, uh, problematic alcoholism and that's kind of how we remember him. There was so much more than that to him and he really was a pretty freaking great leader. Hmm anyway anyway so the civil war officially ended just over a month later according to april to an april 11th 1865 article in the evening star on april 10th the day after the surrender mayor richard wallach and the city council unanimously adopted a resolution stating that in view of the surrender of General Lee and his whole army to Lieutenant General Grant and the assurance which it gives of a speedy restoration of the Union, the citizens of Washington are hereby earnestly requested to manifest their rejoicing in the glorious event by illuminating their private residences, places of businesses, and all the public buildings on Thursday night, the 13th instant, beginning at 8 o'clock. It was a decree of party time. A decree. A Gloria Stefan song just started playing in my head. Which one? Conga. Oh, yes. And Illuminate they did. (laughs) (laughs) Here is a quote from the Evening Star that says, last night Washington was ablaze with glory. The very heavens seemed to come down and the stars twinkled and sort of faded away as if the solar system was out of order. This guy was high. Everybody illuminated. <laughs> he describes it. The whole the whole view you got there, all 195 windows of the post office were lit with 3,500 candles. 230 windows at the patent office. Why do they have so many windows? Oh, that's right. No electricity. Anyway, this is what is today is the National Portrait Gallery and the Smithsonian Museum of American Art. That. 5,000 candles in that. In the front of the Willard Hotel, gas jet spelled out the word union which what like no wonder there were so many fires back in the day i mean it's a lot it's a lot of candles every building was made of wood and every party involved 18 kinds of fire and the miami sound machine rhythm is gonna get you <laughs> but the <laughs> hazards be damned every restaurant hotel government building and private residence in downtown washington was illuminated in celebration and the very next day, the flames of joy would be extinguished. Oh, God, I don't like when the flames of joy are extinguished. No, but we enjoy them while we're here. I guess. On the morning of April 14th, 1865, after Lee's surrender, the president invited the Grants to accompany him and the First Lady to a performance of Our American Cousin at their beloved Ford's Theater, partially because they were buds and partially for the optics. 
Lincoln thought it would be a good idea for the public to see the president and the general all victorious and together and out and happy. But every party has a pooper and that's why we have Mary Todd. Cause girlfriend was a lot. It's truly, I don't want to, it's, this is not to minimize mental health issues. And most historians and mental health experts conclude that Mary Todd had either severe bipolar disorder, manic depression, or most likely a combination of both. And in addition to her struggles, her life was wrought with tragedies, including the death of her children and the stress of being a political spouse. But also she loved attention and being the center of it. And she was a bit of a gossip and a massive jerk. <laughs> Mary Lincoln reportedly opposed the appointment of William Seward to secretary of state and had developed such a dislike for Seward that she instructed the, the, the White House coachman to avoid passing by the Seward residence at all cost. The Secretary of State was known for being a really nice guy and got along well with even the Confederate leaders. And he gave two cats to the Lincoln kids. Like he got along with everybody, but she didn't like him. So no coach can drive in front of his house. You don't even exist, Stuart. <laughs> Oh my God. So Julia Grant's desire to avoid spending any more time with Mary Lincoln <laughs> sealed Grant's inclination to decline the invitation to the theater. Because while Grant and Lincoln had a warm relationship, the same could not be said about their wives. Mary Todd had flown into a jealous rage at the wife of General Edward Ord for the attention she bestowed upon the president in March 1865, just like two weeks earlier. Julia Grant found herself on the receiving end of the First Lady's acid tongue when she tried to intervene. So, mess and recent. Oh, I picture like a really awesome, like there actually is a Real Housewives of the Potomac now. And it would be <laughs> hilarious if it was set in 1865. Oh my Ish. gosh. Oh, I'd watch that. Oh, 100% here for that. So with the grants out and several other parties declining, again, some sources attribute this to folks really not wanting to be in a box with Mary Todd. Or in Mary Todd's box, sorry. That was hey, terrible. No. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Future I'll lady, delete it. this, delete this. I'll allow it. Eventually an invitation was extended to Clara Harris, who was some chick was a friend that she, Mary had chosen herself. She's fine. And uh, Clara Harris's fiance, Major Henry Rathbone, who was a major in the Union Army, of course. Dinner that night lasted from 7 to 7.30 p.m. According to the chronology presented by Edward Steers in his book, Blood on the Moon, which really needs to have a song because that's a great title for a song. Uh, this was his book on Lincoln and the assassination. It is Lincoln. A Blood on the Moon? Yeah. Is it a rock song? Is that why I don't know it? Um, God damn it. Am I thinking, I think it a band on the run? No, it's a, it's a movie. It's a yep. movie. Okay. But I am thinking of Blood on the Leaves, which is a Nina Simone song. Okay. Okay, That's go ahead. different. Lincoln and his wife dined alone because their son Robert retired early that night due to, quote, exhaustion from the activities surrounding the recent Confederate surrender. Bobby was an officer on General Grant's staff. He had been drunk for like a week. <laughs> you would, you, I mean, you would be. 
He would be. Yeah. So he, he gone to bed. Um, fun fact, I, you know how much I love food. I love food and hearing about food and seeing food and reading about food. So what was on the menu? Oh, sorry. <laughs> what? what? Well, okay. So in eighth grade is when we had a huge American history unit on the Civil War. And from like the first day of prior to eighth grade, I had heard I have to get uh, a certain uh, 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 teacher for God, I can't remember his name now. Oh, I'm terrible. It'll come to me. It'll come to me. But there's a certain teacher that I wanted to get for history in eighth grade because of his unit on the Civil War and specifically on Lincoln's assassination. And I remember coming in to the classroom on the day we were learning about April 14th, 1865 at Ford's Theater. And he had started writing in like four point font on one corner of the board. And his notes took up two entire, like however they long they were, 14 foot chalkboards on two different walls in his room. But I remember learned, like he spent a significant amount of time talking about the last meal. That was a whole tangent you didn't need to hear, but it's one of those moments in my, in my growing up that sticks with me. See, though, this is what we're talking about with how history is presented to you and how you feel and how you receive it bears such an impact on how you view these historical events and the players in them. So you're talking about going on to have this fixation like I had on that era in Lincoln and the assassination. I had a fifth grade teacher who was an avid collector of Civil War memorabilia like we spent long we spent way longer on the civil war than any other time did the full like tea soaked letters and like let's pretend write a letter from a soldier home um <laughs> i remember that yeah um and that kind of stuck stuff sticks with you so that's why it's it's so important not only that we this is such a side tangent it's so important not only that we properly compensate people so that they're passionate enthusiastic and well cared for while they're teaching our children. Um, I don't understand why that's hard, <laughs> um, but that those people are are also conscious of the lens that they're providing when they're yeah. when they're when they're telling here about these them their events. <laughs> anyway, so what was on the menu? Andrew Caldwell, author of quote Their Last Suppers: Legends of History and Their Final Meals, which I want for Christmas, suggests. <laughs> Mock turtle soup, which I don't know what the fake turtle is or, or why you were short on turtles, but Washington DC is in a swamp, so that seems ridiculous. Roast Virginia fowl with chestnut stuffing, baked jams, and cauliflower with cheese sauce was the doomed president's last meal. Oh, that sounds good, actually. Is it vegan turtle substitute? Like seitan? Yeah. I want to think just because I know what Rocky Mountain oysters are, part of me wants to think it's some kind of bull testicle and or anus that is a mo anytime there's a fake something or other, it's always a butthole or a ball. And you just take that turtle anus and you dip it into cauliflower and cheese. Yeah. Everything's fine when you cover it with cheese sauce. Yeah. So after dinner, Lincoln met with Skylar Colfax. Hello, Kitty. Oh my God, why is your cat screaming? Because he wants attention. 
After dinner, Lincoln met with Schuyler Colfax, a Speaker of the House of Representatives, and it was after 8 p.m. when he and Mary entered their carriage to pick up Harris and Rathbone and drive to Ford's Theater, which... It is my biggest pet peeve when people are late for the theater. I can't deal with it. Get your shit I together. I know. I know he's the president. I know he's the president, but it really burns my biscuits, ma'am. The curtain was at eight. The curtain is always at eight. And the president arrived at 830, which is, of course, everything stopped and everyone clapped and they had to restart the play. And I just, I do, comedy is so delicate, man. The timing is everything, and you just really killed the show, and it's so rude, and that's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. <sighs> so they restarted the play. Yeah. At 10.14 p.m., the precise timing of the comedic climax of the play, national celebrity actor John Wilkes Booth entered the back of Lincoln's theater box. He had bypassed security by presenting his card, an insane flex, but effective. After securing the first of two doors with a wooden bolt he had fashioned and placed earlier in the day, Booth crept up to the second door and waited for the largest laugh of the evening. During the noise, he entered the presidential box, firing his only bullet directly into the back of Lincoln's head, mortally wounding him. Lincoln's guest, Major Henry Rathbone, momentarily grappled with Booth, who threw down his discharged weapon and slashed Rathbone's shoulder to elbow with a bowie knife. The actors and audience were stunned by the commotion and could only watch as Booth jumped from the box to the stage, shouting, Six Semper Tyrannus, and running out the back of the theater into the night. The president lay unconscious. Rathbone was bleeding profusely while his fiance attempted to close his massive wound and Mary Todd immediately began screaming that her husband had been killed. However, the bullet had entered so close and so cleanly through the skull behind the left ear that external bleeding was not yet visible to any of the attendants that arrived at the box. A doctor was called, but in true Victorian era fashion, the first priority was the optics of what might be the president's final moments. Abraham Lincoln could not die on the floor of a theater. So before the entry site was even identified, Lincoln was hoisted out of the theater and taken to the street. Word had already spilled outside and tenants of the neighboring boarding house hailed the attention of the attendants. President Lincoln was taken across the street to the Peterson house where he would spend his final hours. An example of Mary and her dramatics is that there was blood everywhere in the box. There was blood all over Clara. Mary had on a black dress, I think. So I don't know if the blood was showing on her, but she's screaming and screaming that she's covered in her husband's blood. When in fact, it was Major Rathbone's blood. And Clara Harris was too polite to say something to her. Also, I mean, given uh, what we already know about Mary Todd, I don't think it's the, the time when you want to get, to get into like a little exchange of words with her. No, 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 no. Certainly she would be avoiding that at all costs. My husband's dead. Um, my fiance is bleeding out. I know you said that was um his blood, but it's I just um do you have a towel? Uh <laughs> meanwhile, across town, David Harold led Lewis Powell to the home of William Seward on horseback. 
the Secretary of State had been seriously injured in a carriage accident a few days before and was laid up with several broken bones and a jaw held in place by extensive wiring. 19th century periodontal surgery sounds like a blast, doesn't it? Oh, God. <laughs> Powell gained entry to the home on the excuse that he was delivering medicine. He was stopped at the top of the stairs by Seward's son, Frederick, who insisted Powell give him the medicine because, yeah, you don't order Uber Eats and have the driver set your table for you. The shit stops at the door. Terrible, terrible excuse to get into the house. Anyway, so Powell attempted to fire on Frederick and beat him over the head with the barrel of his gun when it misfired. Powell burst through the door, threw Fanny Seward, Seward's daughter, to one side, jumped on the bed, and stabbed William Seward in the face and neck five times. Which, just side note, that is, there stabbing is terrible stabbing is terrible in general stabbing in the face is awful i've not experienced it and i hope i never do there's no way that doesn't super suck <laughs> it's just that is just awful a soldier assigned to guard and uh nurse the secretary private george f robinson jumped on powell forcing him from the bed Private Robinson and Augustus Henry Seward, another of Seward's sons, he had like 85 sons, were also, <laughs> were also injured in the struggle. Ultimately, Powell fled, stabbing a messenger, Emmerich Hansel, as he went, who was just a messenger. He wasn't there to do anything. Um, as he went, he only found outside that Harold, panicked by the screams from the house, had left with both horses. Also, Powell really fucked it all up. He really did. And also David Harold is useless. Ugh, I mean, he proved he's, yeah. we'll he's got more, that. he's got more to do. <laughs> Seward was at first thought dead, but in an unprecedented win for 19th century periodontal surgery, he lived. The wiring in his jaw prevented any damage to major arteries. So he got away with merely living through face and neck stabbing. So it's no big deal. No big deal. No. But also uh, that you get the face stabbing and then you also get the, the, the stabbing of metal and just hearing that and just. Well, and the, the almost murder of like five other people in his household yeah. on top of everything else. Correct. <laughs> but all five men injured that night, uh, they all survived. Yes. And Powell was captured the next day at the boarding house of Mary Surratt. And that's that about that. As some of you history buffs out there may already know, this attack was no coinkydink. Powell and Booth were part of a conspiracy to decapitate the sitting government entirely, taking down its three heads, the Secretary of State, the President, and Vice President Andrew Johnson. With George Atzerodt, however, he decided not to go through with the attack on Johnson. He got cold feet. He got cold feet and he got drunk also. He got drunk, cold feet. The, the, the only analogy I can think of for this is like, like in like middle school when you were like, okay, on Friday, do you guys all want to wear skirts? Like, like you say to your group of friends, like let's all wear skirts on Friday and you like coordinate your outfits and like one person, like the leader of it is like super into it. And like you come to school and you're in a skirt, but then like your girlfriends are like, I wanted to wear my jeans today. Sorry. And like, didn't go through with it. Like, this is the worst group of friends 
well they're not really friends this is the worst group of conspirators you could possibly organize of murder buddies because and i know you'll get into this later there were even more people that weren't even involved in it directly but were kind of involved in the talkie talkie parts of it yeah it's just just a bunch of dudes being bros it's a bunch of bros being guys it's when you when you organize your murder buddies organize them just make them stay accountable because here's If you're just like, if you're skimming Craigslist for people that are just like, yeah, I'll murder people, you're not going to get the best folks just inherently by, by virtue of what you're asking. Yeah. So back at the Peterson house, as Lincoln lay diagonally across a bed in the far back of the house, Secretary of War and General Badass Edwin Stanton went to work establishing a command center in the back parlor of the Peterson house. In that adjacent room, Stanton controlled all news of Lincoln's condition, prepared the oath of succession for Vice President Andrew Johnson, and began the hunt for John Wilkes Booth. He takes charge of the situation. He's the war secretary, Edwin Stanton, and he's here to save the day. I really like him, sorry. (laughs) He's definitely someone you would want on your murder buddies list. Absolutely. Like if you're in, we're in a zombie apocalypse situation, get Edwin Stanton on that. He can take control of a situation. Think about everything that needs to happen. The most important thing he did was push Mary Todd into another part of the house. So the front parlor (laughs) became a room for Mrs. Lincoln to grieve after Stanton determined she was too disruptive to the president's care. So there in the front room, Mary was joined by her friends as well as the assassination witnesses, Henry Rathbone and Clara Harris, who attempted to calm her. Rebecca, uh, Robert Lincoln and actress Laura Keene, who was starring in Our American Cousin, also visited periodically throughout the night. After remaining in a coma for eight hours, Lincoln died at 7.22 a.m. on April 15th. Stanton saluted and said the famous line, now he belongs to the ages. Lincoln's flag and folded body was then escorted in the rain to the White House by bareheaded Union officers while the city church's bells rang. President Johnson was sworn in the next morning. And the bummer of this, it's not the bummer. There's so many bummers about this, but just something on the side. um, There's way too many cases that you read about of medicine at the time being a hindrance to someone getting better as we said when Lincoln was first shot he didn't excessively bleed um, because of how the bullet entered and how how clean it was and just the distance so when it finally did after they did some digging to try and get the bullet out it started to naturally scab up but they thought because they he would they thought he was going to get lead poisoning so they wanted to let the wound bleed out so every time he scabbed over they kept unscabbing it and he bled out as part of it. And it's like, guys, no, yeah, stop touching it. Well, yeah. And not only were they, they were trying to dig for it with their fingers. And it's not the only time that a president has had somebody go after a bullet with their fingers. Was it Garfield? Was it Garfield who had somebody go after? I feel like it was Arthur or Garfield. Hold on. Well, who got shot in the stomach and would have been fine, except they were digging around with their ungloved fingers to get the bullet out. Yeah. Well, and and there's in the accounts I've read also there, the description of how they would pull these blood clots out, because from what I understand, the first one that the doctor pulled out 
still in the box at um at ford theater like they just describe him reaching in and literally pulling out a blood clot and throwing it on the ground and then the same thing happened on the journey to the peterson house like in the middle of the street they're they're pulling blood clots out and people are trying to like collect the gore as tokens of being present when this happened i don't think i would go so far as to pick up gore but i would certainly probably snap a shot of it which many people did uh the family of the petersons the the existing family of the petersons um who still i believe they officially sold the property or donated it to the national park service um because you can go inside the peterson home which is across the street from ford's theater um but the the relatives of that family have the photo the immediate photo that was taken of lincoln when he was pronounced dead do you and know i the, believe still the pillowcase um which is very bloody do you know the laura keen story while still at ford's theater no okay i'm not trying to usurp on your topic I just no go for it though. so laura keen was the lead actress in our american cousin yeah she was backstage when this hysteria was going down but obviously she's someone who the staff of Ford Theater knew and she had some clout. So she walks from backstage through the house up to the box without anyone stopping her. She asks the doctor who is attending to Lincoln if she can have a moment where she can hold his head in her lap and he lets her. So she holds his head, she says some words, she holds his head in her lap, his blood and gore gets all over her dress. And that's pretty much what she wanted. And to the and she kept it. And to this day, there are parts of it that still exist with Lincoln's blood on it. So talk about, I mean, Mary Todd is like a frenetic kind of drama queen. Laura, Laura Keene is just like, oh. I'm going to be a part of history and just like took charge and like, I hate to say that would be me, but I kind of think that would be closer to me maybe a little bit. I don't like that. Yeah. It's people, upsetting. It's upsetting. People who need people. Like so I would, I'm a, no, 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 go. Okay. No, I'm just saying I, I would never be disrespectful. Certainly. I would, just, want to, I would want to see the dress. I wouldn't want to be the one that's bled well, upon. And, and also just thinking about the era and like globally what was acceptable at the time. Because this isn't too long after. I mean, when they did um, burnings, um, burnings of people who were charged with heresy in Europe, it was incredibly common for folks to go up and pick up the bones and the ashes of people. Joan of Arc, when she was torched, sorry to put so bluntly, but spoiler alert, she got set on fire. Um, and when she was torched, people didn't even wait until the fires had died down before they're like, hey, I got a shin bone. People oh. have always wanted to like have these macabre pieces of history. And that's part of what the Ford's Theater Society put in their opening statements. It's like, we understand that there's this natural fixation that we as humans have with the macabre aspects of history. And while we want to, we don't want to deny that that exists, but we also want to give you something more to focus on. So let's talk about the aftermath of this. The president laid in state in the East Room of the White House and the Capitol Rotunda separately 
from April 19th through April 21st. The caskets containing Lincoln's body and the body of his son Willie traveled for three weeks on the Lincoln Special Funeral Train. The train followed this route from Washington to Springfield, stopped at several cities for memorials, and they were attended by hundreds of thousands of people. Others gathered along the tracks as the train passed with bands, bonfires, because fires are how we celebrate everything, and uh, hymns singing or just silent grief. Walt Whitman composed When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed to eulogize him. Of course, it was something about nature and was unnecessarily long because that's Walt Whitman. Um, and that was one of four poems that he then wrote about Lincoln. So in a larger sense, the reaction was in response to the deaths of so many men in the war. This was the cap of the Civil War, was Lincoln dying. And historians emphasize the widespread shock and sorrow, but they also do note that some Lincoln haters, this was a moment of celebration as well, because the country truly was. It wasn't just like, oh, the war's over, we're all now one again. It was still split in half. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit, but there is a reason why people were aiding Booth in his escape, and yeah. it's because they were not upset by this news. No. And as Martha Hodes recounts in her book, Morning Lincoln, some Northerners who thought Lincoln was too dictatorial, love that word, and some radical Republicans who thought him too lenient towards the Confederacy, welcomed the news of assassination. After a meeting of the Repu radical Republicans hours after the shootings, Indiana Congressman George Julian recorded in his diary that the quote, Universal feeling among radical men here is that his death is a godsend. Senator from, right? Senator from Michigan, Zachariah Chandler, wrote to his wife that God had permitted Lincoln to live only as long as he was useful and then substituted a better man to finish the work. Referring to Johnson and finish, he did not. If anything, Johnson administration's policies were a tremendous obstacle to the advancement of newly freed black, black populations. Um, the famous 40 acres and a mule promise was first popularized by William Tecumseh Sherman during his march through Georgia. Um, this was completely cast aside and considered just a saying more than a real promise of goods. And so terms of reparations were left to be interpreted loosely and locally, which means in most cases, not at all. Additional measures put in place to limit property and voting rights further set back the millions of newly freed citizens who were already starting from zero in environments steeped in animosity. Johnson sucked, man. Yeah, uh, I was, uh, yeah. I think <laughs> what I didn't realize, oh, there's a lot I didn't realize about the Civil War, but Sherman's policy, not Sherman's policies, his like war methods included burning down factories, burning up crops, basically like taking everything away from Southerners. And then of course they have lost their free workforce. So now they're in a position where there's a shitload of animosity in the country. There's a whole lot of just still rebellion coming out of the South. Mm -hmm. and the, the people that live in the South have no means or way to they don't know how to rebuild their economy, which is just decimated. Yeah. And the Johnson administration, not only did they not help newly freed black slaves, they didn't help out Southerners trying to start restart their economy either. 
And that specifically about Sherman is largely why Sherman was a, from, from a military standpoint, he was an incredibly successful leader. The reason that, uh, I mean, he and Grant attended West Point together. They had known each other for years. Um, but Grant very much took a position of never forgetting that the people that they were fighting, they were going to have to cohabitate with at the, at the end of it all. And Sherman was, this is how you win a war which was not wrong, but it is, and it's documented. I mean, even think about um, in Gone with the Wind when they're in Savannah and they say Sherman's coming, that's the burning of Savannah. It was this entire, I think it's something like 60 miles wide, um, this path that Sherman took all the way to the sea where he burned everything. And my fifth grade history teacher um, who collected a lot of civil war things would talk about trying to go antiquing in Georgia. And whenever he mentions like, oh, do you have anything from this era? People would get all pissy and be like, no, Sherman burned it all. It's like, yeah, he did. <laughs> in general, I think we, I was in Asheville, North Carolina. Antiquing in the South can it can show you some stuff. <laughs> show you some dark underbellies. Oh boy, very different. Yep. Um, all right. So that's that's the Johnson side of things. Let's talk about old MT. Mary Todd thought that the vice president, amongst other things, was involved in the conspiracy. Hours before shooting Lincoln, Booth had mysteriously called on Johnson at the Kirkwood house and had left a handwritten calling card that read, don't wish to disturb you. Are you at home? Jay Wilkes Booth. What a weird card to leave someone. <laughs> I don't want to bug you. Are you home? Here's my name. That's the 19th century version of you up? Girl, you up. <laughs> Think about you. Be by later. Um, the first lady, as she wrote to a friend, believed that, quote, the miserable inebriate Johnson had cognizance of my husband's death. I don't know why I've decided that's her voice. Why was that card of Booth's found in his box? Some acquaintance certainly existed. I like her. Thank you. Atzerod's failure to attack the president was even seen by some as proof of Johnson's complicity. The fourth member of the presidential box on the night of the assassination, Mary Todd Lincoln, of course, was scarred by the events and would go on to be institutionalized in 1875. She was not Again, the only person in that box. The lives of the Lincoln guests at Ford theaters ended in tragedy as well. After shooting Lincoln, Booth slashed Rathbone's left arm from his elbow to his shoulder, and Rathbone recovered from the stab wounds, but not the trauma of the night. After marrying Harris, who also happened to be his stepsister, <laughs> do you remember the movie Clueless? So great. Anyway, in 1867, he grew increasingly erratic and perhaps suffered from post-traumatic stress. Two days before Christmas in 1883, he fatally shot and stabbed his wife before stabbing himself repeatedly in a suicide attempt. Once again, however, he survived the knife wounds. Rathbone lived out the remaining three decades of his life in an asylum for the criminally insane. I completely forgot that that happened. Blots it from my brain somehow. And this all, like they were a young couple that on a whim, because Mary Todd was so difficult, got invited one night to go see a play with the president and that absolutely destroyed both of their lives. Oh, I need to see a fictionalized, like 
retelling of history where it's Grant and his wife in that box instead because I want to see what would have happened because I don't like think a, I don't Watchmen alternate like universe alternate universe where Kinda like Inglorious Bastards yeah and Grant just like fucking takes down John Wilkes Booth and it ends there he's got a bottle of whiskey and he smashes it and just slashes yep. <laughs> not in my box <laughs> I don't know it was Grant in the box with a bottle of whiskey. Yeah. But Grant, a typically stoic person, uh, is described as standing before the crowds with tears flowing down his cheeks as he stood at attention next to his commander-in-chief's coffin inside the White House that night. Mm -hmm. My personal relations with him were as close and intimate as the nature of our respective duties would permit, which is just the most hank hill love you but i'm not going to be emotional about it things to say grant also wrote personally was to love and respect him for his great qualities of head and of heart and head and for his patience and patriotism i think that's the thing with lincoln too is even the men that didn't like or respect him that then worked with him like specifically i think seward was one of those men who they did not get along at first that's probably why mary todd didn't like him but like the day either on the day he was shot or the day before lincoln had visited seward's bed and the two men had sat there while seward was recovering from his accident and like they actually get he gained this great amount of respect for him it sounds like a lot of people that worked with Lincoln in Washington, even if they didn't like him when he was, they gained a tremendous amount of respect for him. Yeah. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to like deify him, but. And that's, and again, that's where things get difficult is you can look at how we as people and just history in general, we want to make sure that we're putting these people in these events in boxes that are easily accessible and you can't have but two or three labels on them. To remember him. So you just look at, I mean, Emancipation Proclamation, very important, very righteous, huge. Hi, baby. She's so pretty. Sorry, we have another cat. <laughs> She's a very attractive cat. Um, and was, I mean, by and large seen as just being somebody who wanted to try and do the right thing in the moment, whatever that was. Was he misguided at times? Certainly. Was his wife absolutely ridiculous? You betcha. But but we can't all help that. Um, so the theater, this is what I kind of love. Ford's theater took about a hundred years of going in and out of being a federal government use building. Um, it was gutted and rebuilt on the during the funeral services for Edwin Booth, the br brother of John Wilkes Booth, who was also a famous actor. Uh, on June 9th, 1893, they were doing construction and at the moment of his funeral services, three four floors of the theater collapsed and killed four, 22 federal workers. So it's like the Booth family is constantly coming after the federal government, man. Worth pointing out that Edwin was a huge union supporter and also more famous than his brother. Yeah, he was a better actor. Yeah. Daddy was a better actor. That was, I, this is and not to, not to begin what is going to be your story, but like a big, not the only part, but a big part of John Wilkes Booth becoming this like Confederate brouhaha, whatever it was, was to make himself stand out from his family. He wasn't as good as everyone else. 
no sorry he's like the um, stephen baldwin listen yeah sorry. Stephen, no daniel's the worst baldwin that's true daniel's the worst baldwin all right so uh, beginning in 1968, the theater was restored to its original 1865 appearance and once again started housing live productions. They still continue running shows to this day. They have a regular season and all theatrical performances are explicitly intended to honoring Lincoln's love of the performing arts. So I would like to bookend this session, not with a game, but with the ending of the Ford Theater's interpretive plan. And I want to share with you the museum's interpretive outcomes. And this is what the curators, historians, and visitors, what they want you to know and feel as a result of any interaction with the Ford's Theater. So Lainey, if you have responses to these, I want to hear them. And to all of our listeners, I hope that you can take note of these and just think about them yourself too. Number one. Know that Abraham Lincoln's assassination was an act of racially motivated political violence and an action contrary to democratic rule. Number two, connect the assassination as an act of political violence to other similar events and critically analyze their justifications and efficacy. Three, Consider the consequences of using violence to resolve current individual and political tensions and what can be done to avoid violence. Number four, listen to and share stories of how systems of white supremacy continue to shape our country and politics today. Number five, feel a range of negative emotions about John Wilkes Booth's actions. Mm -hmm. And finally, number six, advocate for and encourage others to peacefully participate in the democratic process. Go vote for the love of God, everyone. Oh. <laughs> yeah, safe to say 45 isn't sitting in that box anytime soon. No, stop. Sorry. Stop <laughs> we specifically were asked not to do that specifically okay this was a beefy little chonker wasn't it oh yeah <sighs> facts and history and stuff and things facts yeah i don't it's i can't think of anything any good responses to those final bullet points provided by ford's theater just because they're so succinct and well written and the only thing i could say is yup <laughs> I, don't, I don't have another response and I uh, that's the thing is I said it before and I'll say it again it's so easy to remember www.fords.org they it's have just, the most amazing well thought out resources and guidelines it's it's a phenomenal website sorry just just to, just to hear that phrase like that the assassination was racially motivated political violence it's not a it's not, I've never heard it contextualized like that before, even though I, like, I know rationally that's what it is. I've mm -hmm. never heard that said because it is a piece of history that is presented to us in such a theatrical way, not just because of where it took place and who the perpetrator was. That's just the story we've heard painted with these broad strokes our entire life. It's mm -hmm. so like, you have to understand why it happened and 
figure out how that can be stopped from ever happening again. It's the, I mean, it's the folklore of the history is you start to take, you start to look at it as this kind of fairy tale esque things. You identify who the good and bad parties are and you don't, you either don't take the time to look into the finer details of it or realize that it's a real event and apply it to what you're seeing now. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so well done. That was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> and like you said separately offline, we could do like a 10 parter on this and it would oh still be God. fascinating, but we're not, we're just going to do a two parter for now. Next week, I am going to take the bad guy's side not take his side, but take his story over um, from shooting until capture. We're kind of doing a Tarantino's Hateful Eight of just switching. We are up. doing that. Yeah, this exactly. This is what you saw. Now here's what really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll take over. We'll give you the history. We I will give you the history of John Wilkes Booth to that point. What happened after he jumped from the stage until he was caught? in Port Royal, Virginia, 12 days later. And while I have heroes like old Wirejaw can live through multiple stabbings, Seward and Edwin Stanton and all these amazing people, you get that, that laughing crowd of chuckle nooks. <laughs> They're not smart, you guys. They're just not smart. I mean, Booth is a little bit smart, kind of, I guess. But oh. anyway, sorry. Yes, to be continued next week. I'm so excited. Any All right. thoughts from you? Just that I have really, like you said, been, spent so much time analyzing different things that happened in the 1850s and 60s in the past two weeks that I almost can't think about anything else. And the fact that John Oliver had the audacity to make his last week tonight about that, I was like, the world is in my head and my head is with the world. We are all becoming pudding. Everybody, this is Audrey. I'm going to get my mic fixed next week. I promise. <laughs> Yay. And this is Elena. And thank you for staying tuned and, and tune in next week for the stunning climax of this story. And in the meantime, I don't let the door hit you on the way out. A goodbye. Bye. Bye.